0: First John chapter two uh, verses one and two is what we'll be this morning. Last week, I left you with some really bad news. I, I basically told all of you that you were full of sin, and I was full of sin, and then we prayed and we got out of here, all right And uh, I promised you that if you came back, that there would be good news, and you did. You like, you know went through cold weather to be here and hear good news, and that's a really good thing. Um, but I think it's interesting that I actually met with someone this past week. That said, that um, they really don't like preaching about that's about sin, that focuses on sin. And I'm not saying that sin should be the primary focus, but they didn't like preaching with that talked about sin. Uh, And it's oftentimes a pretty popular thought that you see with people in America. They don't like to talk about sin. There's actually one of the largest and fastest growing churches in America. They have a policy where they don't even mention sin from the pulpit or blood or atonement. And so it's a popular idea that people do not like sin because it doesn't sound loving. But the problem with that is it's not honest. It's not honest to say that because when we talk about love, the love of God, we need to understand what links God went through in order that we might be loved by him, In order to do that, we have to talk about sin. I believe it's virtually impossible to talk about the love of God and separate it with the problem of man. And the problem of man is, and we said this last week, sin. Let me give you an example of this that I think might be helpful. um, I'm afraid of swimming underwater. And uh, one of the reasons for that is A, I grew up in the 80s where Jaws is a really popular movie. That's one reason. Uh, B, I I almost drowned when I was about four years old. And I went to my aunt's house, and she had a pool, and we're all, my whole family were gathered around this pool. Everybody was kind of done swimming and talking and hanging out. And I was the youngest there, and I remember walking around the edges of the pool. I had Star Wars action figures, the original ones. This is going to show you how old I am. And I had the Luke Skywalker, like the the one where he's like in the ice. I don't know which one that is, but it's the one he's like wrapped up in like a turban or something like that. And uh, I had Luke Skywalker and he slips and he falls in the edge of the pool. And me as a four-year-old, I start to reach for Luke Skywalker and I just fall right into the pool. Now, I'm told that no one noticed this for a while. And I was at the bottom of the pool uh, looking up Bubbles coming up. And um, finally, my sister's friend, her name is Christy Curtis, Um, my sister's friend, Christy Curtis, she was a lifeguard. And she dove in and she got me out. The next thing I remember is me coughing up water. She's pushing on my, you know, I don't know what she pushed on, but she saved my life, okay? Um, And I coughed up water and, you know, she, everybody, oh my gosh, and claps and he's okay and... Uh, maybe some brain damage. We're still figuring that out. Um, but Chrissy Curtis is a person that I think about, and what I, what I know about her is that she saved my life. Like, I still see her sometimes, my sister, and they're still friends. And now, if I, if I went to Chrissy, and I, if I went to you and I introduced you to Chrissy, I told you that, hey, I want you to meet Chrissy Curtis. I've known her for all my life. She's a really good swimmer. That really doesn't help you understand that story at all, does it? If I said, I I want you to meet Chrissy because uh, Chrissy is a rescuer, that really doesn't help you understand that at all, does it? It doesn't bring any clarity to my relationship with her and how significant she is in my life. But if I tell you that, I want you to introduce you to Chrissy Curtis because Chrissy Curtis saved my life because I was literally drowning at the bottom of a swimming pool, you will listen then, won't you? You you will listen and engage with who Christy Curtis is. You will say, okay, tell me about this story. All right? So the character of Christy is, yes, she's a good swimmer. But part of the reason why I think she's a good swimmer is because she saved my life from drowning in a pool. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Because we think, if we don't talk about sin, we think we're helping someone, but we're not telling the full story. We're, we're saying things about God's character without application to that character. Are you tracking with that? We're saying God is love. Just know that God is love. That's what you need to know about God, that God is love. But if, we don't, if you separate that out from he loved us in spite of our sin, that when while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We missed the weight of how loving and wonderful God is. So in First John chapter 1, John tells us at the very end that we have all sinned. And if we say that we have not sinned, John says we're liars, and worse yet, we make God a liar. And then in chapter 2, he continues telling his readers about sin. Now, he, he's, what he's going to do in chapter 2 is, in chapter 1, he, he begins to kind of attack the heresy of the day. And the heresy of the day was Gnosticism, which believed that you are a spiritual being and therefore you cannot sin. Spiritual beings cannot sin, so you can do whatever you want and it's not a sin. That's, that's what Gnosticism did. Now, What John's going to do in chapter 2 is he's going to move away from attacking Gnosticism to talking directly to the believers and saying, listen, believer, here's how I want you to see your sin in light of the gospel. Now, I have a, a theory. Now, this theory is, I believe if you're really a believer in Christ and you're maturing in your relationship with the Lord, you don't mind hearing about sin. Because you know that Christ has died in the place of, for you. Christ has redeemed you of your sin. So you're not afraid of sin. Now, if, if, if you're often afraid of hearing about sin, it's A, you're either what John says, you're deceived by your sin, and you're afraid to hear about it, thereby repenting of it, or you don't understand the weight of the gospel itself. So John's gonna focus in on how he wants his readers To see their sin through the lenses of the gospel, and that is our aim as well this morning. So, First John chapter two, verse one. He starts off by saying, "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin." Now, what does it mean when he says, "My little children"? We almost think that it sounds condescending. If I got up in front of you all this morning and said, Welcome to Integrity Church. Thank you for being here, my little children. You might be a little bothered by that. It would be somewhat condescending uh, to say that. Now, John does not mean it in a condescending way. He he means it as a a term of endearment. It's kind of like in the South. If you meet an older man, he might call you young man, or he might call you young woman, or he might call you son. Have you ever been called out by an old man, son? Listen up, son. Yeah, somebody did. I've been called out many times, son, you got to listen to me, son. And it wasn't my dad. It was an older man who's spoken into my life. And this is in term of endurement that, that John uses. But it's also, it, it carries a lot of weight with the context of what he says next. He says this in the second part of John 2, verse 1. He says, but if anyone does not sin, does sin, sorry, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the way that God wants to describe, uh, John wants to describe God in Scripture. He calls him Father. John uses this phrase often, even in the Gospel of John. We see John would have heard Jesus pray this way. Throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus, when he instructs his disciples to pray, he says, when you talk to God, you start with praying our what? Father. Who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. He starts with this idea that when we talk to God, we address him as father. So John would have borrowed this directly from Jesus, and he's saying, hey, we are God's children. He is our father. He, he raises this idea of he, we, he, we are like a family underneath this wonderful father. Now, culturally, some have issues, found issues calling God father. Uh, there 's actually a pretty strong feministic persuasion right now that wants to refer to God as a he or she, uh, yet the glaring truth of scripture is that God has chosen to describe him that way. Uh, there are even trends right now in in the u s that are moving toward calling God as mother actually um, a popular group Christian band by the name of Gun- uh, Gunger uh, just came out with a song called "God Our Mother," and I was really discouraged because Finally, there's Christian music that I can tolerate, that I like listening to, Gunger. and then they come up with really bad songs like this, and I'm like, dang it, right? And the thinking behind their the song of calling God as mother is because they would say, well, God doesn't have a gender, he isn't like us, he carries the attributes of a mother, so now why, why not call him mother? Does God carry the attributes of a mother? Well, certainly, is God nurturing? Of course. Is God comforting? Of course. But Scripture does not allow us to change a title that God gave himself. He's mainly referred to as father. Listen, God is mainly referred to as father, not so much that we would understand him as father. That is part of it. But it's actually more than just about us. It's actually to show us his relationship with his son, And the more and more I read scripture, it blows my mind because the more and more I read scripture, I realize the story is not so much about us. It's really about God displaying his love for his son. It's the father and his son. That's the whole story of the Bible is God saying, here's a story about a loving father and his son and how he wants to glorify himself through his son and we get to be a part of this redemptive story. And so when you take out the, the picture of God being father, you, you lose that. You, you lose what the whole Bible was written about. The whole Bible was written about God the father glorifying himself through his son in the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we take it out father, we lose this meaning. We lose really the meaning of what Jesus came to do. And so I think a lot of hold up, why people resist calling God as father is because so many people have issues with their own father. Right now in America, there's 60% of kids go to bed at night without their father in their home. And so when we say, hey, call God father, people react to attaching their earthly father to their heavenly father. And they believe, okay, if my earthly father is like this, and that means my heavenly father is like this, and I want nothing to do with my heavenly father if that's the case. My earthly father abandoned me. Why would I want to call God father when I have this bad understanding of this role? Now, I want to say this right off the gate, right out of the gate. God is not like your father. Even if you have a good father, God is better. God is better. And John is going to show us how great our heavenly father is this morning. If you even look back in chapter one, verse nine, John says about our sin. He says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does our father do? He Accepts us for who we are and he embraces us and he meets us where we are and he's faithful and he's just to forgive us. It's not just something that he does, it is who he is, it is his character. He is this is a father who is our, and John says it in chapter 2, he is our advocate. He's our advocate. The writer of Hebrews, when he talks about our father, he talks about our heavenly father as a high priest. It's interesting, in in, in Hebrews you see the Jews would often look at the prophets and the priests and they would hope that they would be their advocates. They would hope the prophets of old and the priests of old, they would be our advocates, they would be our mediator between God and man. But there's this mixed up view that the Jews had about this idol worship of man. And he's trying to take them to no Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the angels, and he's going to go and raise the stakes of this is the high priest that we have. And it's interesting, even in Hebrews 4, this is the way that John describes who Jesus is. And it reminds me of the love that a father has for his children. Look in verse 14 of Hebrews 4. It says, In time of need. What does he say? We have a father who gets you. You have a father who gets you. He sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, and you can go to him, not with fear, but with confidence. I have two boys, Finn and Gideon. Finn is, he just turned eight this past week, and Gideon is three years old, and um, love my boys equally i tell people that uh, i remember when finn was born i couldn't imagine having a second one and loving them as much but then i say when you have your second child your heart just grows and you love your second one just as much as you do your first and there's something interesting about my two boys they are drastically different finn looks like his mother but he acts just like me it's bizarre and it goes down to simple things. One of our favorite movies is um, a Wes Anderson film called um, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And he has the weird, twisted humor that his daddy has. And we all the weird little nuances of that movie that are bizarre and kind of dark humor, he laughs at. There's this scene when Bill Murray plays a badger. And Fantastic Mr. Fox, who's George Clooney, they, they have this scene where they... They battle it out, and it's this weird, awkward standoff. And Finn and I laugh so hard, we have to pause it. And I'm like, my wife thinks it's the dumbest movie of all, but he and I just get it. We're like, our brains are, are connected on one channel and he knows all the lyrics to any indie folk song I love. He's like, "Hey, Dad, what's that song that goes?" I'm like, "Oh, that's such and such." And we'll play it and listen to it. He's like, "That song is awesome." I'm like, "I know. I'm so glad you heard that." Where did you hear that? And like, we just shared these stories. And we and he tells long stories like me. And he he uses wide hand gestures like me. And um, he wasn't gifted with an athletic ability like me. He made his first shot yesterday in basketball, and he's been playing for two years, all right? So his uh, average is not very high right now. He's got a good assist average, though, like his daddy did. Um, But I, I, like, we have this same brain. And, And so what happens is when he does something wrong, I will often sympathize with him. He has trouble with math. I had trouble with math. I understand why he has trouble with math. And I understand how he's trouble concentrating and focusing and, and like numbers and all that stuff. I understand why he struggles. But listen, I can sympathize with him. My wife, not as much. Gideon, my youngest, he's the complete polar opposite of Finn. Finn's very neat and clean. Gideon's messy. Like my office is neat and clean. Finn and I like order. Gideon is not like order. He's messy. He's like a little frat boy. We gave him a hat the other day, and he turned it around backwards instantaneously. (laughs) We put a little collared shirt on it. He popped his collar without any prompting. (laughs) Why would you do that? You know? When he sleeps, he sleeps with his belly hanging out and his hands down the front of his diaper. And there's no prompting to that whatsoever. He just does it. That is who he is, and there's no changing that. And when he does something wrong, I don't understand it. Why would he do that? And I have trouble sympathizing with him. I can't understand why. Gideon, why would you make a decision like that that is so out there and bizarre and unusual and still love him the exact same as I love Finn? I love all of his unique, quirky things that he does, Gideon, and I will probably live vicariously through his athletic accomplishments because I can already see his eyes start to twinkle when he sees a tackle on a football field or we went and saw a girls rugby game and he cheered when he saw this girl just get nailed on the sidelines <laughs> and I love—I will probably live vicariously through his personality and so I love them both equally the same but listen, here's what I'm trying to say when I say all that I can sympathize with Finn, I understand Finn but I can't, I can't sympathize as much with Gideon my wife does that better than I do but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying desperately in my own human strength to be a good father to my two boys and sympathize with them both in their weaknesses. And think about how hard that is for me with two. Some of you have more children than I do. And you're like, wait, you have three or four or five or whatever. But God, he looks at all of us and he says, I can sympathize with each and every single one of you that I've chosen. I can call my son or my daughter. I know you inside and out. I actually know you better than you know yourself. I actually know the sins of omission the ones that you have struggled with your whole life, you know it's true about Scripture, the sins of omission, the sins, the sins that you don't even know about that you have that are deep in your heart, the jealousy, the envy, the rage, whatever, the anger, the bitterness, the insecurities. God says, yeah, I know you in those ways. In fact, I've made you the way that you are. I even planned the things in your life that would bring about these certain ways that you respond to things. I know you better than you know yourself. Yes. Yeah. I sympathize with your weakness. I am your advocate. And when you sin, I am faithful and I am just. I'm right to forgive you of your sins. And this this is how well God knows you. And it's not that he's this cosmic Santa Claus that sits up and says, who's naughty? Who's nice? I'm going to punish the ones that are naughty. No, we can come to him for, with confidence. Why? Because he's our father. He's our father. And he's not out to get you, he's not out to punish you. I remember shortly after Michael Jackson's death, um, I remember hearing about, uh, and just in documentaries that, that showed up right after his death, um, he was talking about how he became literally a perfectionist. If you ever watch any documentaries, on Michael Jackson. He was a musical genius, um, but he was a perfectionist to, a, to a, a, a terrible fault. And he said that, and I learned as he was talking about why he was a perfectionist, it's because his dad beat him to be a perfectionist. If Michael Jackson didn't perform something perfectly, his dad would beat him with a belt. And he would wait and get home, and Michael Jackson could nail 90% of a show, but if he doesn't get that 10%, his dad would beat him with a belt. And what you have at the end of Michael Jackson's life is a confused perfectionist who doesn't understand grace or love. It's a broken little boy. And if you have this view of, maybe some of you, you have this view of God. You believe that God is up there with this belt, and he's there to punish you when you don't have this perfection in you. You failed today. You didn't do your quiet time. You didn't share about Jesus. You, you keep struggling with pornography. And so what he's doing is he's going to keep beating you down because he's so angry at you and he's so mad at you and he can't even look at you because you're just that disgusting. That is not the gospel. It's not who he is. He's a father who loves you. He's a father who's chosen you. He's a father who's redeemed you. And he's a father who's faithful and just to forgive you maybe you lack confidence in area of your in every area of your life because sin has brought you so low but listen you can come to him as your father but what do we see about the father let me read it again hebrews 4:16 it says let us then draw near to the throne of grace that's our father that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There, with our Father, grace is found. Let me show you one more. First John 2, verse 2. This is what else he says about our Father. He is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, when he talks about the whole world... John's focusing on the global scope of the gospel. He's not saying like every person's a Christian, um, because that would be universalism to say that. But he's saying, when he refers to the world, he's saying in in every tribe, tongue, and nation, there's going to be some that he has atoned for. But what he talks about this word, he says this word propitiation. It's a theological term, but it's also a Bible word. And if a word's in the Bible, you need to know it, all right? the word is in the Bible, we need to know it. And it's important that you understand this word because it helps us understand John. And John's going to use this word uh, several times. In fact, when John talks about uh, the concept of love, he actually ties in this word in John 4.10. He says, herein is love that we love God because he first loved us and he sent his son to be the what? Propitiation for our sins. So what does this mean? What? How would John's hearers understand this word propitiation? And what does this have to do with the Father's love for us? Well, I want to explain this word and how his readers, John's readers in Asia Minor, would have understood it. In the Book of Leviticus, we find something known as Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and uh, the Jews would celebrate the Day of Atonement annually, and it was one of the most. It was the most important day of the year for a Jew, and it was the day that was intended to deal with the sin problem between humanity and God. If you have sin in your life, you have to wait really for Yom Kippur to happen, to where you go to the temple or the tabernacle and you have the high priest, he's able to go behind uh, a curtain, and that was the most holy of places, it's where God's presence resided. And there, the priest would be a mediator between God and man, and man would have his sins forgiven. Now, there are many things that I could talk about that happen on Yom Kippur, but I want to focus on one thing that stands out the most. What you have, they would pick, Israel would pick two healthy goats without defect. They were chosen, and they were to fit as a representative to be sinless perfection, And you even see this in Leviticus 16, what happens with these two goats. And I want to read Leviticus 16, 16. This is going to help us understand what propitiation means. Uh, Leviticus 16, I'll start in verse 16. It says, thus he shall make an atonement for the holy place because, Uh, actually, let me start in verse 15. Let me do that. Sorry about that. Fifteen he then shall, t- shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do uh, with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat, thus he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of his people of, is- of the people of Israel because of their transgression and their sins, and so he shall do from the tent of the meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Now, no, no, no one may be, from the, may be in the tent of the meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out he's made atonement for himself and for the house, for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns, and the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with finger, with with finger seven times, with his finger seven times, and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. Now what happens here? This is known as the sin offering where a high priest slaughtered an innocent goat. And this innocent goat acted as a substitute for sinners who rightly deserved a violent, bloody death for their many sins. But this goat would act as a perfect, sinless substitute for sinners. And then what the priest would do is he would take the blood of this innocent goat and he would spread it on top of the Ark of the Covenant which is the most it it sits in the most holy place in the temple and then the goat was no longer innocent when he took the guilt of sin it was the sin offering for the people of Israel so this goat who was innocent now became guilty so that those who were guilty would be innocent and then there's another Part of it in verse 20 of Leviticus 16, it says, when he made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people and their transgressions, all their sins, and shall put them on the head of the goat and send him away into the wilderness by the hand of man who is in Readiness. Now, here's what happens. Here, this is known as the scapegoat. If you've ever, if you've never even been to church before, you probably heard the phrase scapegoat. When you try to put something on someone that didn't deserve it, said if you get in the blame, they get the blame. They become your scapegoat. This actually, this phrase actually comes from the Bible, and what it means is, it's the, the representation that is shown in Leviticus. You have these two goats. One, this scapegoat, he is going to be a representation of how our sins would be in the theological term is expiated. It would be placed on Jesus and it would be sent away and God would, to quote the New Testament, our sins would not be remembered anymore. And then you have this second goat. This or this first one we just talked about is propitiation. This is the sin offering whereby their sins were placed on this goat and this goat would be a sacrifice in our place. The death that we deserve to die was put on this goat and he would die in our place. That way our sins could be atoned for. And this idea to propitiate is an English word that carries the, the only English word that carries the idea of satisfying the wrath by taking care of the penalty for the offense that caused the wrath. This is this idea of the doctrine of propitiation. And what John is saying when he says this, he's referring back to this practice in Leviticus whereby people's sins would be forgiven and atoned for. They'd be expiated, they'd be sent out and God would remember them no more, but they would be propitiated. They would be forgiven in a way that... There'd be a sacrifice paid in the place where we should have paid it, but we couldn't. So when John, in John chapter two, he says he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the world, he's talking about Jesus became sin for us. He's talking about the wrath of God that is placed on sin was placed on his son. And this, this for, for me, it answers the question of um, why is God so aggressive and seemingly angry and seemingly mean in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he seems so nice. Like, did he just take, like, yoga classes? Did he get the right Spotify relaxing mix to listen to or Did he learn aromatherapy or bought the right essential oils and he learned how to relax better? And no, it's the fact of propitiation. The fact that Jesus became sin for us, the fact that Jesus absorbed God's wrath on the cross, and that's the gospel. And so when we think about this concept of propitiation, the reason why God is not out to get us is because Jesus died in our place. Paul says it this way when he talks about propitiation. You can see propitiation show up all throughout Scripture, so it's important that you know it. Romans three twenty three it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a Propitiation. By his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So what does Paul say? How are we redeemed? How are we made right with God? Paul says it's through the blood of Christ. It's the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners and he uses the word propitiation. It's the fact that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. It's the fact that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died to death that we were condemned to die this is the atonement this is what jesus did on the cross for us it's interesting when in the last few years has been a big push on what the cross has really been about um, you see some more uh, emergent church leaders and they'll try to say that the the point of the cross is something known as christus victor which is christ is our victory and we need to look at him because he's our victory, because he, when Jesus died, he crushed Satan and demons and sin and the world, and that is true, but it's not the primary point. Some will also say that the point of the cross is that Jesus would be our example, Christus exemplier, which means he is our perfect example, and he's a perfect example of love, and how we should love others, and how we should live our lives. That is also true, but it's not the primary point primary point of why Jesus died on the cross is, is, is for love it's for love and his love was displayed through His sacrificial death on the cross whereby he substituted himself in the place of sinners John would have heard Jesus say these words in John fifteen thirteen: greater love has no one in this than someone lay down his life for his friends here's what I'm saying Without the doctrine of propitiation, without Jesus dying in our place, we are fatherless. We don't have an advocate without Jesus dying in our place. God would be out to get you if Jesus didn't die in our place. In fact, if you want to sum up the gospel in just four words, it's Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. Jesus dying in our place. That's the gospel, that's the atonement, that's what Jesus did. And so I think it's important that when we talk about the gospel, we talk about sin because the gospel is not the gospel unless we understand what sin is. That we are all sinners. And God's wrath is against sin and it's against sinners. But the fact that Jesus died in our place, he absorbed all of the wrath that God has on sin, and he died. Sacrificial death, perfect and sinless in every way. Was he our victory? Yes. When he resurrected from the grave, he conquered Satan's sin and death. Absolutely. Was he our example? What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful example. But we must see this doctrine of propitiation that he absorbed the wrath of God and he died in our place, or we're not seeing the gospel. Jesus in our place. And because of that, we have a father who is our advocate. But when our father sees us, he doesn't see the works that we do or the works that we don't do. He sees the work of his son on the cross. And so, what do we do with that this morning? It's not like I can say, go and do likewise, right? It's not like I can say, here's a list of things to do in light of this. But I can say, do you believe that God is this way? Do you see God as a father who sympathizes with our weaknesses? Do you believe God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins because of what Jesus has done? Do you have sin in your life that you've not confessed to your father? And maybe the reason before that is because you don't understand the grace that he offers, that he's faithful and just to forgive you. It's my hope this morning that we would embrace the gospel, We would embrace grace. John Stott says it this way. Grace is love that cares, stoops, and rescues. And that's what Christ did for us. Let us pray as we give thanks for the sake of the gospel. Father, thank you for loving us and meeting us where we are. And that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.